we can go ahead and find a seat. That would be great. All right, we're going to get going here. Sorry. No, it's, uh, it's been last year since you've connected, so, you know, you've got to catch up. Well, uh, today we're going to continue in a three-week series uh, called Abiding in the Vine. And uh, the focus of this series is really how it is that we're formed spiritually, how it is that we live a fruitful life in Christ the Vine. The idea comes from John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And uh, the general idea here is that if we abide in Jesus, we're going to have a fruitful life. And abide, it's a powerful word when it comes to describing the Christian life because it's more than just a one-time event. It's actually this lifestyle. It's this daily, hourly, and even momentary state of relating to Jesus and how you live and how you pray and how you obey and how you trust and find your joy in him. Now, we could talk about just a ton of different ways in which this expresses itself in the Christian life. But for the sake of this short series, we're going to focus in on three areas. Last week, we talked about abiding in the Word. This week, I'm going to talk about abiding in holiness, this idea of our spiritual transformation. And then finally, next week, James is going to talk about abiding in rest. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that one. Um, Now, I want to forewarn you that today's sermon, it's it's different than uh, a normal sermon here at the Vine. Typically, we take a verse uh, or a few verses from the Bible, and we talk about that, and we just really zero in. Uh, mainly, this is different because I'm going to take some time up front, in essence, the first half of this sermon, uh, developing an idea for how to understand spiritual transformation in this kind of broad level as we think about life biblically, okay? Now, you see, a foundational concept of the Bible is that as Christians, we should always be growing and changing, Okay, and Martin Luther, he coined this, this term in Latin, semper reformanda, which means always reforming. If we're a Christian, we should always be changing, always be growing. But as we study the Bible, we see that there are certain conditions that facilitate this environment of growth. One of the sayings I learned years ago, and I've said it a lot here at the Vine, but it's this idea that we do what we do because we want what we want because we believe what we believe. Uh, The inverse of that is we believe something that affects what we want, which ultimately affects what it is that we do. Um, This lines up with passages like Romans 12, 1 through 3, which gives us this idea that our spiritual worship leads to our transformation, and it flows from a renewed mind, okay? So the idea, we, we do something, and it comes from the things we love, which comes from those things that we believe, Okay? And so in this message, what I'm going to be doing is exploring the conditions or beliefs that are needed to create a transforming culture in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our church as well. So uh, the first part of this message, it's going to feel a little academic as I'm laying this framework, but hold on because the back half, we're going to be getting very practical, looking at a few passages and then really applying those passages Uh, to how it is that we live. So let's pray, and then we're going to give this time to the Lord and then move forward. Lord, thank you that you brought all of us here today, and I I pray, Lord, believing um, that there is a word from you for us. And uh, Lord, it's going to be in spite of me. It's going to be in spite of us, because the reality is we're all over the place all the time. 
in uh, how we think and how we live. And yet, Lord, we need you and we need your grace to reveal to us ways in which we can be a people who change. And so help us to do that and help us to learn how to do that in new ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know how many of you have, have heard of the show Shark Tank, um, but it's a very popular show, actually. And so if you haven't, you could you know, look, look for it on Hulu or whatever. But uh, Shark Tank is a show where there's a panel of several wealthy investors who watch presentations from aspiring entrepreneurs. Okay, and during each presentation, really the entrepreneur has two main goals. Number one, to um, bring up or convince the panel that there is a significant problem. Okay, there's this big, important problem. And then the second burden that they have is to convince the panel that the ultimate solution to that project problem is the product that they created, okay? And uh, these, uh, create, these innovations, they range from very creative and innovative to very bizarre, but the same is true for every contestant. If they, if they can convince the panel that their product provides a quality solution to a real problem, then the investors begin to compete. They give offers of how it is they're willing to partner with that person to help make that dream a reality and send their product to national or worldwide distribution levels. <clears throat> now, I think the one reason that America loves uh, a show like Shark Tank is because it appeals to this idea that we love to see creativity and innovation solve a problem that makes our life better. Okay, we love seeing that kind of thing. It's kind of the American dream in, in some ways. Now, though you may have never looked at it this way, the whole concept of applying creativity and innovation to solve a serious problem is central to the whole message of the Bible, okay? We, as we study that historic narrative of Scripture, we learn how the creator of the universe chose to supernaturally resolve a problem that we could have never fixed on our own. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the solution to this problem and how our understanding and application of that solution, it either leaves us stuck in the same place or it causes us to move forward in a cycle of transformation as Christians. So in order to help us understand the problem, solving context of the scriptures, what I need to do is take a minute and like Shark Tank, okay, imagine the Lord is, is a contestant on Shark Tank, okay? And, and I want to make a few statements about the nature of the problem and the nature of the solution, okay? And this is especially true for those of you who are new to Christianity. I want to just take a moment and detail this. And that is that the problem is sin and the solution is saving grace. So let's look at those briefly. Okay, sin, here's the problem, I'm just going to pull a definition from Wayne Grudem, and you'll see it on the screen there. But here's how we can define sin. Any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So James was kind of talking about this. But sin, it's not just bad behavior like lying or stealing. Okay? It's also reflected in our attitudes and motivation. And he, James just mentioned this, Matthew 5, 28, where Jesus said, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's not just 
the action of adultery. It's the imagining the action of adultery. Now, the real bummer in all this is that Romans 3.23 says the wages of sin is death. So this means that since sin entered the human race, that it brought with it death, death that's expressed in our earthly lives as we see things like cancer and broken relationships and anger and war. But there's also a spiritual reality to that death. Okay, It means that there is sin that now creates an eternal rift in our relationship with God, a rift which will forever separate us from him unless a solution is offered. Now, as desperately sad and, and, and you know, horrible as that problem is, the beautiful thing is that God flexed his innovation and creativity in the most beautiful way with his solution of saving grace. Saving grace, and here's a summary that I have for this. It's the gift of undeserved blessings at the expense of Christ's life. So the first part of God's solution involved him enacting justice by, in essence, paying our fine for sin. Okay, Mark 10.25 describes it that, that God the Father gave Jesus, and in doing so, he paid the ransom, right? He purchased us through the, his death on the cross. And and so the first undeserved blessing of his saving grace is forgiveness for sin for all who'd receive it. But there's another blessing too. And we see this in Galatians 4, 7, where we read that we are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we got to get this full measure of the blessings that are made available to us in that when we come to God in faith, inviting his forgiveness of sins, He takes us from the servants' quarters, and he gives us a seat at the table. He actually makes us his son or daughter, heirs to his vast fortune, okay? His vast spiritual and future fortune for all eternity. And so, again, the solution that God here, he's presenting to us through his word for the problem of sin is that it's the gift of undeserved blessing at the expense of Christ's life. There it is. We get the problem and the solution. And it's an awesome foundation for us really understanding the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That's, those are the essence, those essential elements of the story. But imagine with me now, we're sitting on the show Shark Tank, okay? And I know it's kind of crazy, but imagine that the Lord is the contestant. And I, I, can, I can envision in my mind one of the investors stopping for a moment and saying, okay, but I've got a question for you. I get the severity of the problem. I'm convinced, man, this is really, really bad. Uh, but, and I get the solution. I'm, matter of fact, I'm blown away as I sit here, not only because of the mercy and grace of the solution that you're offering, but the very fact that it cost you so much. You gave your own son to eliminate this unbelievable problem. But I still have one question for you. What impact will these truths have on day-to-day life? Okay, after all, those who receive it, who, who get the forgiveness and they embrace the solution, we're still living in a broken world, right? So how does this solution help them in the here and now? And that's the question I want to answer with the rest of this, of this message today. To do this, what I'm going to do is take a moment to give you this big picture understanding 
of, of the biblical picture of our transformation, okay? And so we're going to look at how it is that, that the way we respond to, to the, the problem and the solution, that it creates different cultures that cause us to live and, and behave and think in, in different ways. So be patient with me. I'm going to lay this out. And then again, we're going to get very, very practical as we consider examples and application. Okay, so uh, you're going to see the first slide here. In this diagram, what we see is that the vertical, okay, or I'm sorry, the horizontal, so the side-to-side arrow, what it represents this is, is a view of our problem of sin, okay? If you're on the left side, it represents a soft view of sin. Now, this is the person who may believe that the problem of sin exists, but be honest, I mean, in your day-to-day life, you're not all that concerned about it, okay? If this is you... It doesn't impact your daily life. You don't have this pattern of confessing it. You don't think about it all that much, and you're certainly not concerned about the sinfulness of others. Okay, now look at the other side. The right side represents a serious view of sin. This is the person who's grieved over sin. If this is you, you dislike the sinful tendencies that keep cropping up inside of you. You're jealous for the holiness of the church. You, to borrow that opening illustration, I mean, as the Lord's presenting the problem, your, your eyes well up with tears. You're grieved at the significance of this problem. And then the top, okay, so that was the bottom, this low view. I'm sorry, that, that was the, the right, right, this, the view of serious sin. Now, let's look at the other, and that's the up and down, that arrow that represents our view of saving grace, okay? The bottom represents a low view of saving grace, Now think about it this way. If this is you, you may believe that saving grace is needed, but it doesn't captivate your thoughts, okay? You you listen to this concept on Sunday, but when you leave this building, you just go about your day. You think about, you know, sports or, or sex or your career, and that's what captivates your thoughts. While faith may have a place in your life, you're fine putting saving grace in a box and just you know, opening that up when you come to church or when you go to city group during the week. Now, the top arrow represents a high view of saving grace. If this is you, then again, just like you're grieved, grieved over sin, you're equally blown away by the fact that God saved me. I'm amazed you approach the Lord's table and it's, and it's not this thoughtless exercise. You're, you're living daily thankful daily grateful, moved and amazed by that God offered so much at the cost of his own son to save you. And you don't struggle as much in lacking compassion for others because you see how God has been so compassionate to you by forgiving you of sin at the cost of his son's life. Okay, so, so that establishes uh, these, this illustration now, I understand that none of us lives in any one place on that, those spectrum at any one time. But what I do want us to see is that there are four views that emerge depending upon where it is that we tend to rest and live in light of our view of the saving grace and of sin. Okay, in the four categories, and this is the last piece of this illustration, 